Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. With the Lord being our help, it's my desire that we start on Wednesday nights a study on this book, studying these 25 verses that are rich and fitting during this era of the church age in which we live in. I'm going to read the first five verses here. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was need for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed them that believed not. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again, as always, for the opportunity to open your word. Our request is this evening that you feed us from it, Lord, that we see the urging and the calling in the book of Jude for us to contend for our faith, Lord. It is without a doubt in an age that we live in that it seems that the church has become relaxed and not only relaxed about the things in which they do follow, but in the, they become relaxed in defending in which they truly believed. Lord, we pray for us in this time, Lord, that our faith is strengthened, that we hear the call, Lord, and that we also begin to contend to our faith, contend for our faith in a way that we have not in some time. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. It was during the Revolutionary War that George Washington had found his trust in a man who seemed to be brave. He seemed to be everything that you would want in someone who was a representative of your army. So impressed George Washington was with this man that he gave this man the rank of Major General. And if that wasn't enough that he gave him the rank of Major General, Washington placed him in charge of West Point during the Revolutionary War. In September of 1780, Washington would hear some startling news. The startling news was about this man who he believed to be brave. This man who he believed that was so brave that he should be in charge of West Point was actually a traitor. Benedict Arnold. There he was prepared in September of 1780. Soon as the British soldiers was going to arrive at West Point, it was his plan to turn over West Point to all of Britain. When this was found out, Washington was making a beeline for West Point in which Benedict Arnold would find out and he would flee back over to Britain's lines. 
in essence. This is why the book of Jude was written. There were people who were professing the name of Christ. There were people who professed that they loved the Lord our God. They professed that they had this saving faith. They were in the church. They were amongst the people. And yet, even though they were in the church and amongst the people, they were apostates. They were the Judases of the church age. Even more, this isn't something new to us. We see this even today, even in our short time, I'm sure, that we can account for people that we know people who once professed that they loved the Lord, who once entered into the waters of baptism, and yet they denied the Lord and this most holy faith. It means nothing to them to turn their back. It means nothing to be apostate. It means nothing to be a Benedict Arnold of the faith. I was wanting to get a deeper understanding of apostasy and what it meant to be be an apostate. So I turned to Google. And as I turned to Google and looked up what it meant to be an apostate, you know what it said? It's worth 14 points in Scrabble. That's the world's definition of what it means to turn your back on God. That's the world's definition to recant this faith that we have, yet it is so tragic to leave this faith. Matter of fact, you couldn't even centrally, I I not only believe that God superintended over the translation process of the word of God, I believe he superintended the process in which the books were laid out. I believe that the book of Jude is placed in the best place in the New Testament. I mean, you couldn't pick really a better place. I mean, you come into the New Testament. We just talked about this, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even as you come right before Jude, what are we, what are we faced with? Brother Evans been preaching through it, the book of John. What are we constantly challenged with in the book of John? If you even just turned back and looked in John, just in those first couple verses there, let me see here. I'll give you a couple. Second John chapter 1, verse 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only, and not I only, but also that they have known the truth. In verse 2. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. First, second John chapter one and verse four, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the father. Third John chapter one and verse three, for I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Coming into this 
age of apostasy that Jude is contending against. He is rejoicing about these believers who are walking in truth, whose joy is centered in truth, whose life is centered all around truth. We leave this trilogy walking in truth, dwelling in truth, and then we find ourselves in the book of Jude. A book, according to Jude, what he says here in verse 3, this writing that he was going to give to them, when he set out to write to them, and just to communicate with them. He said in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, by the way, this common salvation, don't take this as a, a frown upon, this common salvation is the only salvation that will get us into heaven. But when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. He, he said, I started off to write unto you about this great salvation. I've been pondering this great salvation in my own life today. Fourteen years ago, this very day, the Lord saved me. I've been pondering it. I'm sure that this is what he was saying. He said, I, I set out to write this unto you and tell you about this common salvation, this great salvation that saved my soul. But as I sat down and took the pen and took the pen to the paper, the Holy Spirit arrived on the scene and showed me that it was more needful for me to write unto you that you guys must contend for the faith. It gives us understanding that there's great trouble in the church. A man who is suited up and ready or on the battle line does not need to be told that it's time to be inducted or it's time to enter into the military. Or a man who's battling doesn't need to be convinced that he should serve in the military, but yet he does need to be told, hold the line. He does need to be reminded not to waver, not to give up. Yet we know time after time that there are very few things as dangerous as people who refuse to hold the line in, milita in the military. When people who are on the line begin to waver, it affects all the camp. When people who are called to hold the line begin to become afraid, and begin to back down or begin to hide behind quarters, you know what happens, right? It begins to affect the whole camp. And so right, Jude writes to the believers to warn them, not about the enemy on the outside. That's not what apostasy is. Apostasy is the war within. It's not that the world was attacking the church. It's that there were people who was inside the church who professed to love this great God and now were speaking out against him. They professed that Jesus was the only way to salvation and now other ways were being promoted. Benedict Arnold's of the faith. They once named Christ. They once professed their trust in God. They once believed in God, but now they were apostates. They were enemies of the scripture. And Jude now tells them to contend. Now, this word contend isn't just to say, you know, when you get an opportunity to debate, to debate against this. That's not at all. Uh, this is considered, in the Greek, a strong verb. 
It's such a strong verb that he says that when it comes to this issue of apostasy inside the church, you must strongly contend. In another word, in another part, it's used as the same word as agonize. To fight, to struggle, to contend, to struggle powerfully. For what? For the faith. Meaning that I was going to write to you about this salvation, but I realized that the, the salvation is not what the church needed to be reminded of. The church needed to be reminded that they must stand for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Jude's charge here is an objective word. It's an objective charge. It is that we are to do something, and that is that we must contend. Though this is, they said, the fourth smallest chapter in the New Testament, it is one of power. It is packed with truth. First, second, and third John being walking in truth, and later we'll see, this is why it's so beautiful, while first, second, and third John were talking about why we should walk in truth, Jude begins to speak about apostasy, but when we turn to a revelation, we realize that the apostates will not reign for long. Because the Lord will soon bring the sword and bring all this to an end. All acts against the church, God will judge. When we see the book of Acts, our hearts are, are, are gripped about how the soul, about how the Holy Spirit's moving. Right? We, we see the beginnings of the church. How the Lord moved, how the Lord used missionaries, the acts of the church. But when we get to Jude, uh, Jude we see the act of the apostates. Uh, this is what's happened to the church now. In, G in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11, Jesus warned them, and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Peter warned, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon them swift, themselves swift destruction. We see it there, right? Jesus warns it's coming. Paul warns it's coming. Peter warns it's coming. Jude says it's here. Everything that we've been told about is now arrived. And that's exactly where we are today. Many believe that these ages of the, the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation are ages of the church. Which many believe to say that we are in the Laodicean age. Uh, lukewarm, cold-hearted against the things of God and apostasy reigning in the church. While I don't know whether or not we are in the Laodicean age, I cannot deny how apostasy, how many apostates are standing in the house of God today. It's troubling that you can meet people who hold positions, even in the pulpit. A, a brother just posted about this preacher preaching the other day, wanting to put himself in the place of God. Listen, he was on fire. He was passionately preaching. His words were moving, and yet they were not true. The age of apostasy, Jude is warning against them. But also notice about this call to arms here. 
I just really want to focus on verse 1, and then we'll be done this evening. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. In this call to arms, this 25-verse book, epistle, is every word. It seems like Jude just put so much thought in as he pinned it down. We ask ourselves, even in the most simplistic way, Jude the, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James. You find it interesting that James is the brother of Jesus, Jude is the brother of James, and yet Jude does not start off this epistle by saying, Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James. Yet he starts off saying here, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. It is an interesting thing that Jude does not go to this name of being saying, I'm Jesus' brother, because that's not the greatest title you can have in reference to Jesus Christ. It's not the greatest title. Even though he was Jesus' physical brother, he does not seek the title. He doesn't seek to raise himself a brother. Instead, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, this word servant is a familiar word to us. It's kind of how Paul starts many of his letters when he uses the word doulos. It is the word that we use for the bond servant. But when we think of the word bondservant, when someone spoke of himself as a bondservant, it meant that he had a close binding tie with his master. It meant that the bondservant was not only in service to his master, but it also meant that the bondservant had a desire to be in service to the master. We oftentimes view this when we see Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, we take the derogatory term. Well, I mean, nobody wants to be a servant. Well, if that's what you've taken away from this word, you've misunderstood the word. This word, when, when Jude said, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, he said, Jude, I am the bond servant of Jesus Christ because I have a desire to be in service for Jesus Christ. That is the clarity of it all. It is the most troubling thing when we take and we say to ourselves, I mean, servant, how degrading. A bond servant is one who disregarded their own interest to be in service for another. It is someone who gave up the things that they dreamed about in their life because a greater dream came along. It is to have your goals set upon accomplishing one thing in life. And then there is this interaction, this great salvation from Jesus Christ. And to say, I'm setting all that aside because this master is greater than any I've ever seen. So when he speaks of Jesus Christ, he speaks of him in the regard that he is not my, just my brother. That is not what I acknowledge him as. Matter of fact, there was a time in my life where you would say that Jude could say there was a time in his life where he didn't acknowledge Jesus as Christ at all. He was just Jesus. He was just my brother. But after the resurrection, 
Jude would acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. Matthew 1.21, he would recognize that Jesus was the one who would save him from his sins. Jude would recognize him as more than that. He would recognize him as what his mother Mary recognized him at when she found out she was with child and she went into that doxology of praise and saying how she needed a savior. Jude would come to this arrival here in this very first sentence. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, I've seen him as the savior. And until we get to a place in our own personal life where we'll see him as the Savior, we will never want to be in service to him. Being a bondservant will be of no interest at all. But when we see him for who he is, not some kind of historical figure, not some guy who disrupted the world some 2,000 years ago, but that he is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Until we get there, being a servant to him, being his bondservant will be of no interest at all. But when we see that, it will make the change in all the world. It's about the spiritual relationship with him. That's what Jude's saying. The servant of Jesus Christ. I am spiritually related to him. Forget the physical. Titles don't matter, but yet it seems in the secular world it does. I once took a job that paid less because I had a better title. And I planned on using it for the next place I went and worked. Yet many times (laughs) here, and many times in our own life, that's where we find ourselves. But yet, Jude doesn't enter into this with boasting himself as his brother. The greatest title that we could have, the greatest title that Jude could ever say of Jesus Christ is that he is in service to him. It seems that the ideology, though, of oftentimes, and even in this time of apostasy, the ideology of the world has crept into the church, that the title matters. That the position matters. What you're raking in the church. I've seen deacons whose heads were so big, so swelled up that the fact that they were a deacon, that you could barely get them in the door. And the reason is that their heads were so big is because they had no sweat equity. If they would have just done what a deacon was supposed to do and go be a diakonos, which is a servant, they would have sweated some of that big head away. And told everybody the truth, being a deacon is hard work. But the problem is this, is that when we take the ideology of the world and bring it into the church, we put ourselves in a position that Christ deserves to be in. We lift ourselves up and Christ comes along to be some kind of substructure to who we are in the church. But the first thing that he does in speaking to the apostates, is bring them back to the fact that we are nothing more than servants of Jesus Christ. But nobody likes that. And it seems that nobody likes the thought of being a servant. A servant. But yet when we read Philippians, that captures his humility. In Philippians chapter 2, he said, but made himself of no reputation. It took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh, to be this 
humble servant of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest title that we could ever have in this world. A businessman once asked a, a, a Bible study group, how can you tell if you have a servant attitude? This is something that we all could ask, I guess. How, how can we tell if you have a true servant attitude? The reply came back, by the way you react when you're treated like one. It's not easy to find an attitude like that, but for a disciple of Jesus Christ, servanthood is one of the keys that we know that we're growing into Christ-likeness. He became a servant. Now, notice how Jude finishes this verse quickly here. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to, him, to them that are sanctified, by God the Father, and preserved, that means secured, in Jesus Christ, and are called, selected. So those who have been sanctified, those who have been secured, those who have been selected. But amazing words here, to them that are sanctified, to them that are preserved, to them that are called, these are three words that kind of define the rest of the verse, meaning to these people who are sanctified, to these people who've been set apart, set apart for service, set apart not only in salvation, but for the continual path of sanctification. But notice who set us apart, who have been set apart by who? God the Father. Not only are we sanctified, not only are we set apart, but we are preserved, kept, never to be removed, never to be lost to them who God sought. Have you ever thought about that? That God sought you? When I was 15 years old, I was going around the neighborhood, knocking on people's doors, asking them if they would pay me to take out their garbage cans. One day I had stumbled by this S10, and I had fallen in love with this S10, and it was for sale. For the next two weeks, I don't even know if I slept. I was cutting more grass and knocking on more doors, taking out more garbage cans, and doing more work than you could ever imagine to buy that S10. It was beautiful. I'll never forget the day I bought it. We pulled it up into my driveway. I was so excited about that thing. I'd go out in the driveway and start it up and turn on the radio and listen to it. And then one day when I went out there to start that beautiful truck up, it threw a check engine light. And before long, it started having problems. And before long, it was back for sale. And I sold it again. Because that truck that I purchased actually became problematic and I ended up getting rid of it because that's what I do with problems. And that's how we would have been if we were in the position of God, but God is not like us at all. You know, he said to them that are sanctified by God the Father, for those of us who are saved, we're saved brought out of darkness in the marvelous light, yet we're still problems for God. We're still sinners, still making mistakes, still, I mean, spiritually, we drive ourselves insane. 
But yet God, what does he do after he purchases us? Even though we're still problems, even though we're still work, he preserves us forever. Never to be plucked out of his father's hand. Never to be cast away. Never to be lost. We are secure forever in him. Oh, God is not like us at all. And not like us even in the closest bit. He preserves us. And even after we failed him, he decides to keep us. That God would ever even seek a relationship with such a failure is far beyond my understanding. That he would look down into humanity and see us. <laughs> to even give Jude the ability to say, to them that are. <laughs> Not only did he do this with one, but he did this with many. To them that are. To a many people he did this. He sanctified. To a many people he preserved. To a many people he called. He, he did this many times. To them that are Spurgeon once thinking upon this, he said, I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never uh, he never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for some reason unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself. And why he should have looked upon me with special love and called us is far beyond my understanding. So Jude, here, coming in, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified and called by God, to them that are set apart, to them that are preserved, to them that are called, these people, if we sit here today and say that we believe that we're saved, and we believe that God has set us apart for a purpose, and that he's preserved us, and that he's called us out of darkness into marvelous light, there is good news. One, it's good to be saved, but there's also more news. This letter's for you. And what we uncover in the weeks to come, you have just qualified yourself as a recipient of this letter. You know, when I was a kid, we would go to church camp down at Camp Caleb. And without a doubt, we would end up meeting people from other churches in other states and we would be pen pals. And it would start off good, like, I'm going to write you all the way till next year. And that wasn't really fully true. It was only if my mom made me go back next year because I didn't want to be away from my mom. But we would be pen pals. And I can remember when we would first get home, we would write each other a letter. And we would be so excited. And we would run to the mailbox. Is, there, is it for me? Is it for me? Is it for me? And we would get the mail. And we would rip it open, read it. And we would hurry up and write back. I wonder how the recipients of this 25-verse letter felt when they said, it's for me, look, saved, sanctified, preserved, called, that's us. And then he says, get to your swords. It's time to contend for the faith. You've taken a stand-back approach too long, and that's why apostasy has thrived in the church. Contend, contend contend for the faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you, Lord, for this opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us 
as we continue and start uh, this study in the book of Jude, Lord. I pray that you'll open my mind to understand your word, Lord, to help deliver it to our church, deliver it to myself, Lord, that I may be encouraged, that we may be encouraged, Lord, and that we may stand in this age of um, the manipulation of truth, this age of apostasy, Lord, this age of people just slandering this word, Lord. Lord, I pray that we, not, we do not become disheartened. That's not what Jude said here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he didn't say become disheartened by those who turn their back on the faith. He didn't say quit because others quit the faith. He said contend for this faith. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be soldiers as we contend for the truth of your word. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.